welcome to the fifth episode of Hey, We Need to Talk. There's a certain image that India has traditionally enjoyed at an international level. Or put in another way, there's a certain manner in which India has positioned itself within the world order uh, as a secular, plural, multi-party democracy. But there's a sense of late that this is changing, uh, that this image or this posturing, or in other words, how the world looks at India, is undergoing certain normative and structural shifts. Now, this is, of course, up for debate, but there are certain patterns that are discernible, which says that the way India does diplomacy or the, the way India interacts with the world um, is undergoing some kind of alteration. And the sense is that this is not for the better. This is for the worse. Uh, but again, this is something that uh, what we are going to discuss today. And for that, uh, I have with me two very special guests. I have Shubhangi Agarwala, who's a final year student at NLU Delhi. And she works on critical international law and also runs a uh, blog called uh, International Law in the Global South. I also have with me Pranav Dhawan, who's a fourth year student at NLS Bangalore. And he's also the founding editor of Law School Policy Review. He's currently interning at the Bombay High Court. And both of them have very closely worked on issues of uh, international affairs and uh, India's international image and how India fits within the global world order. Welcome, Shubhangi and Pranav. Hey, hi, I'm Shubhangi. I'm going to begin with two specific events that happened in the last two months. Um, earlier in September, at the end of September, uh, Amnesty International India uh, decided to close down their office in Bangalore, uh, stating that they are being hounded based on hounded by the government on the basis of certain tax laws or foreign funding laws. Then uh, in October, the UN Human Rights Chief, Michelle Bachelet, um, she made a statement saying that India has been using certain laws to go after foreign NGOs and um, other organizations re that receive foreign funding within the development sector and also been using draconian laws such as the UAPA uh, to go after dissidents and political activists, right? Um, and to which the Ministry of External Affairs shot back with a very uh, stern reply, with a very harsh reply. Uh, in which it said that India is a democratic polity based on rule of law and an independent judiciary. And more critically, it said that violation of law cannot be condoned under the pretext of human rights. And a more informed view of the matter was expected of a UN body, is how New Delhi put it. But this is not the first time um, that our foreign ministry is responding to a statement from the UN with such strong words. In fact, um, I would say uh, this has been the trend in the last uh, two, three years. Uh, particularly, I have noticed a shift uh, in the way the world, particularly the Western world, perceives perceives the Narendra Modi government uh, since the abrogation of Article 370 last year, August. There were some limited amount of criticism that the Modi government was receiving from external quarters before that. Uh, however, um, particularly in 2014, when the government came to power, I would say it was seen more or less favorably, even by Western liberal governments and Western liberal media. But progressively, things got worse for the Modi government. And I would say after, after August 2019, um, that is the abrogation of Article 317 in Kashmir and the, and the lockdown that the government imposed in Kashmir, uh, the noise from the external quarters became louder and louder uh, with each day. Then we saw a delegation, a particularly unusual delegation of, uh, of far-right members of European Parliament visit Kashmir 
and um, immediately after after that we saw a congressional hearing centered on Kashmir uh, in the US um, during which India was critically apprehended Indian policies in Kashmir were critically apprehended so my question to both of you is do you think there has been a shift at all uh, in how the world or the western liberal media uh, looks at the modi government or looks at india currently under this regime and if there is a shift what kind of shift do you think uh, has it been so you, you know every time someone like brings this up i feel like there is a standard answer that's expected that uh, like you have these documents by international ngos and the unhcr on how the modi regime is fascist and violating principles of international law and this and that this translates into a diplomatic mess but in my opinion the situation is a bit more complex than that and i'll give you like several reasons for why i think so uh, i think the first being i mean since like i think my primary interest is uh, regarding critical international law right so i'm coming from that positionality and i think the first has to do with how we define authoritarianism and fascism in international law uh, i'll give you an example for example if you google if is modi a fascist you'll see a variety of reports um, and op-eds and editorial pieces uh, which all come to different conclusions and i think the striking thing about this is not the fact that there's the sheer volume of conversation that's happening but the fact that every commentator seems reluctant to come down hard either way um, and they either settle for something along the lines of like it's almost fascist barely fascist or not yet right and when you think about it it's not really hard to make uh, it's not really hard to make sense of this ambivalence mostly because most of these commentators use the same narrow range of case studies in order to generate their definition of what fascism entails which is basically hitler's germany or mussolini's italy uh, thereby completely excluding the global south from the general history of fascism and i think this has a very uh, obvious real world consequence because what this results this ambiguity that's generated actually creates uh, the possibility of other state leaders and other uh, actors in the international fora to absolve responsibility because there's complete ambiguity on whether this actually constitutes as an authoritarian regime or fascism because we're relying upon european case studies and european def- uh, definitions of what this entails so that's one thing where i think uh, which i think we must consider when we're talking about how the world is viewing india currently but also the second thing is i think uh, we tend to think that international law and fascism are both incompatible uh, and there's this common idea that fascism first attacked international law and was eventually defeated by it at the end of second world war but i think this assumption is deeply misleading because both fascism and international law have colonial origins and in fact if you look at classical international law uh what might be surprising to many people who are not familiar with international law is that international law is neutral towards 
regime types. What this means is that the purpose of international law was to facilitate interaction between states, regardless of the kind of government a state has. Of course, in the 1990s, um, with the human rights movement, you see a push to a more democratic international law. But I think that's, uh, I think, now scholars are coming to terms with the fact that the human rights regime and the liberal order uh, didn't benefit as many people as we were initially uh, led to believe it did, right? Because it's often tethered to open markets, which are not suitable for erstwhile colonies like India, which are kept at an inherent disadvantage. So. I was also like recently, I was also reading a paper by Tom Ginsberg, who is a professor at the University of Chicago, who gave a really mind boggling statistic, which is that less than half of the world is living in full democracies or flawed or even flawed democracies. So I think the question then becomes, who are we referring to when we talk about how the international community views India? But even formally progressive states such as the United States, uh, which ostensibly had a very liberal agenda that it promoted the world over, has recently taken, uh, has recently voted against the United Nations resolution that condemns the glorification of Nazism, which you would assume is a very basic thing, <laughs> uh, that you would assume that the international community can gain consensus over. Uh, and I think Another example would be like just last year, there was an effort to condemn China for the for its policies in uh, Xinjiang, where there's a crackdown on Muslims. Uh, but after a debate in the international community, a massive majority of states voted with China to defend its human rights record, including Muslim countries such as Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, or Iraq. Uh, so I think what it goes to show is that a fractured multilateral framework is the order of the day. And uh, even like, I think the most striking thing about this is that even though we're living in uh, a global pandemic, when you would have assumed that um, there would be a collective search for a solution, we're just not seeing it, right? So I think it sounds really cynical, but I think the international community's reaction to India is not and probably will not be as pronounced as one might expect it to be. Right. That's a very interesting point about um, also about how you talked about um, that how international law was never actually designed uh, to counter any authoritarian or fascist regimes, despite the coming of a more democratic um, international legal regime, let's say in the 90s, uh, in the post-Cold War era. Uh, I'll come to that point later. But uh, Pranav, what do you think? Has the way India is seen by the world or has the way the international order, the, the world order views India, has that changed over the past uh, half a decade or so? I think the way India looks at itself has itself changed. So a large part of how the India's image makeover at a, uh, at a global level has uh, changed, uh, image makeover has happened is uh, a function of what has happened in India. And I do, I do agree with uh, Shubhangi that uh, we do not, we, we cannot expect a lot of reprisal from the international powers or the fractured multilateral order that we have, or even uh, we, or even expect something to, uh, expect this to be something like a new normal or something radically different from the past. 
but uh, one thing which is very different is uh, is precisely in terms of how india views itself and i would like to demonstrate it by saying how uh, how when the indian constitution was founded or how when the indian nation was founded um, there was a lot of idealistic internationalism in our approach to the world and there was an approach towards world peace there was an approach towards world diplomacy and the way india saw itself was uh, as a as a willful participant in a global world order which was based on rules and when we see the and and there has have been a lot of cracks in it when we look at the situation in kashmir in 1990s when we look at the situation in other border districts in the country at various points of time um, we we do see a lot of problems in that but uh, india has i think uh, the new thing that has happened today is that india is uh, not really as concerned about its international image and it is rethinking its own image and what we see uh, in uh, the current external affairs mr jay shankar's statements after some international organization or a or a or a government which doesn't support the kashmir policy or some senators in us they make a critical statement the way india approaches it is not by justifying india approaches it by saying okay yes we have done it and you deal with it we, uh, and there there is a sense in the statement that we as a nation are changing ourselves and uh, the world should start to deal with us on new terms now that leads in my opinion to a very confusing maze uh, of uh, of international uh, it's like i think it leads us to a confusing maze of international engagements wherein uh, you have a bunch of countries where india has shared interest but those uh, those shared interests are affected because uh, of certain core points of the domestic policy in india for example if the domestic politics in india wanted to otherize muslims when the pandemic started then a number of muslim countries and other countries from which we had so many uh, foreign tourists who were attending a religious congregation they were uh, one would say irregularly and extra constitutionally not just put in and um, not just isolated but also arrested and they continue to be arrested and there are some uh, provincial court orders which are letting uh, letting them go and there are orders which are questioning government high handed but the statement that is sent to uh, to the world is one where one that the india's domestic commitment to a rule based order has reduced and i think that has led us to a situation where while the world itself is trying to deal with this fractured multilateral uh, international international order uh, in india itself is dealing with these contestations in 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 a way that is probably not in its best interest right um so the sense is that if if we assume that there is a normative change in which india deals with the world or the world deals with india then that's because there are normative changes happening at home um the fundamental character of the country or the fundamental character of um uh, the the indian polity or the indian republic is undergoing shifts but within that there is a gray area that there is certain there is a certain kind of decoupling between uh of the events that are undergoing or the ideology that's being uh, propelled at home and the ideology that's being propelled at a global scale for instance um we still see our diplomats we still see the uh, indian diplomatic establishment um taking a quote unquote liberal stance in global bodies we have seen um, india making very pro uh, refugee and pro migrant arguments um sorry hang on i'll, I'll say that again 
um, we have seen India make very pro pro refugee and pro migrant arguments at a global level, particularly uh, during the meetings and conferences of the Global Compact on Refugees and the Global Compact on Migrants. Uh, we have also seen India not abandon the multilateral framework. In fact, proactively push for a for global multilateralism. It even joined um, the certain alliance of multilateralism that was created by Germany last year. Um, so uh, unlike the Trump administration in the US, which has, let's say, uh, uh, pulled pulled itself out of the G the Paris Accord, um, UNESCO and WHO, India hasn't done any such thing. So there is a sense uh, that India wants to completely separate or distinguish its ideology. Uh, the Modi government wants to completely distinguish its ideological, um, you know, dispensation or its ideological outlook at home and, and what it does at a global scale. Um, now, this is, of course, because the manu the space for maneuver for a country like India, for a middle power like India at a global scale, is much smaller than a space that a country like the United States has. So, so um, it, it's, it's, it's under compulsion to project a liberal point of view in a world that is still predominantly liberal, that still predominantly follows the liberal framework, uh, in order to remain a part uh, of that world order, which India definitely wants to. Um, what do you think, um, Shubhangi? Absolutely. You know, I think Pranav made a really interesting point that also ties in with what you just said, which is that there's a complete lack of justification that's being provided by the Indian government, which is surprising because even um, states which like which inherently don't agree with the with international law, such as China, made sophisticated legal arguments during the South China Sea arbitration. And then you have India where, where during the Balakot strikes, just saying that uh, they're con conducting a non-military preemptive strike uh, with no legal basis. So I think there's also this question of how do you even analyze something like that when India is not even bothering to justify its actions. But on the same note, I think what is really interesting, particularly um, with regard to the CAA riots, is that India is actually adopting um, the language of international humanitarian law in order to um, like in order to propagate its own anti-Muslim rhetoric, um, so like, like for like just as a just for some background, um, the CAA amendment created an exemption uh, from the illegal migrants category for persons who are Hindu, Sikh, Buddhist, Jain, Parsi, Christians from three Muslim majority countries. Uh, but what the government has said, it's in its response affidavit at the court, is that. India is the sole rational and logically feasible place in South Asia for refugees to make an asylum claim. And it also says that it wants to uh, protect people from persecution. So you see how it's continuously using the logic of international humanitarian law, but in a very counterintuitive sense. And I think uh, another thing that's very interesting is that by singling out only Muslim countries, as opposed to uh, uh, like Buddhist Myanmar or uh, uh, or even the Tam Tamils in Sri Lanka, I think what India is doing is it's engaging in exceptional persecution, which the government then equates with religious persecution. And uh, this sort of discourse, which paints Muslim states as barbaric, in contrast to like, the secular and compassionate India, is an essential aspect of Hindutva ideology, which, like, if you see, it follows uh, 
the the savage victim and savior narrative um, which is of something that scholars who are critical of human rights discourse regularly invoke um, when talking about when when talking about how to critique human rights discourse because it's the same sort of logic that colonial states imposed um, upon their colonies so i think it, this is a very interesting shift where uh, india despite being a post colony is actually invoking the language of a colonial state uh, to perversely use humanitarian principles of refugee law and construct muslim states as savage whose victims have to be protected by the hindutva state right that's that that is very fascinating it actually goes down to the core ideological motivation behind something like the ca um there is uh, there is uh, simultaneously there is also uh, the narrative that's attached to um, the ca is that india is a natural ham- homeland of hindus so any hindu from one of these quote unquote uh, persecuted environments in this muslim majority country if they want to look for a uh, look for refuge if they want to look for a permanent home um they might as well come to india it's almost like the zionist argument for israel um so uh, and it's interesting how india frames it at a global context um what do you say about this uh, pranav and also if you could talk a bit about um what i said earlier in terms of uh, is india trying to uh, pitch itself as still being a liberal power uh, or still being a liberal country which has been its sort of usp or its connecting link with the west for the longest time but doing something very contradictory or quite the or, or following following a very opposite ideology uh, back at home yeah, so when i was listening to shubhangi speak one thing came to my mind was that indian secularism since its very inception has been viewed by many as this hindu attempted multiculturalism and there is a lot of attachment of this uh, benevolent hindu or majoritarianism and i think while that benevolence has, cert- has certainly gone away and while we do see a sort of punitive nature in that uh, ideology the, the especially the ideology that we've got i think what what goes at the heart of lib- of the liberalism or illiberalism of our regime is the question of how do who determines uh, and takes and appropriates these labels and if you if you talk about uh, appropriating ambedkar buddha gandhi and making yoga day a big thing and talking a lot about uh, the, the the welfare work in india so india is certainly making a lot of pr moves globally and uh, certainly trying to also co-opt the liberal space by saying that this is how india determines or current regime determines liberalism and that this is cert- that according to them is a more genuine definition of liberalism and this is especially true in the context of how uh, the moves in kashmir are being defined uh, i mean we see a lot of con- in, like diplomatic confusion here because when the queer rights agenda in the unhrc is debated india doesn't vote in favor or it defers but when we talk about kashmir uh, the first thing that the, the government says abroad is that it is going to help the scheduled caste scheduled tribes is going to help uh, the, the india spears because the supreme court word is to get uh, extended there and it will help women so uh, we do see a very maximalist approach if you if if you allow me to call it wherein india wants to co like very narrowing wants to co-opt every tag that it can uh, while falling short of many of them and while falling short of uh, that whole temperament that is there in international diplomacy of engaging with the other side of justifying your side of demonstrating your commitment because 
uh, a sectarian law like CA is anything but secular. But uh, what we see in the benevolent justifications for it is uh, is an attempt at a at a is an is it a liberal attempt to co-opt the secular space. So th there is certainly a lot of confusion that is there, and uh, I think I think what we need to look out for is how does this pan out with the with the state of the world today. If we look at uh, if we we are living in a post-liberal international economic order world wherein all countries are both internally divided and and even the mediums for multilateral engagement are divided. So how does India pan engage with this is something that is very, uh, I mean, it should be very fascinating. And I hope uh, th there is some degree of coherence towards the national interest in these Right. There is, um, I think it also comes down to what liberalism actually means within a domestic context and within an international context. I think there's a, there's some sort of normative difference um, in, in how, uh, how that term is understood. Um, in a more domestic political context, uh, let's say in the Indian context, liberalism might mean, um, you know, uh, affirmative action towards minorities, um, greater human rights and, and sort of greater, um, greater political and civil rights. Uh, but then again, when we talk about international, the international order, um, let's say India's participation in the Quad and, and India's India seeking a more uh, rules-based sort of free and open Indo-Pacific, for instance. Um, there is there is also that sense that 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 kind of liberalism or that kind of creation of a liberal international order and India leading that order at least within the region uh, can happen simultaneously um, while the government uh, installs a more sectarian domestic regime. So there is that level of separation or the kind of separation that's been engineered, right? And I think at the heart of it uh, is exactly this. Uh, a public relations strategy at an international level, right? Because India cannot afford to project itself as a Puritan ethnic majoritarian state or a sectarian state within a liberal order, within an international order that's still predominantly liberal, right? All right. Um, so what I'm actually cu always curious to know when I think about this, um, these recent push and pulls between India and the international community, um, there's, a, there's a lot of talk about in international circles um, that there are pushbacks to the Indian democratic order or the, the Indian liberal democratic order. Uh, then we have seen very critical statements from the UN. There, were, there was a statement, very strong report on Kashmir in 2018 from the OHCHR to which India actually shot off with a particularly harsh response. Um, India even talked about, um, you know, quote unquote, uh, personal prejudices seeping into the report. And it was not so subtly referring to the OHCHR's Apparent, apparently personal prejudices against India. Um, so it came out as a very jarring response from uh, MEA where uh, and, and OHCHR was also accused of pro-Pakistan bias. Uh, then um, two years later, we saw the USCIRF, the Commission on International Religious Freedom, uh, you know, bring out a very, very harsh report on India where it in fact uh, put India in the country, in the list of countries of particular concern and even suggested sanctions uh, against Indian leaders. The last time the USCIRF did that was uh, during 2002 after the Gujarat riots, uh, right? Um, so we have seen some very, very strong statements from, from particularly within the UN framework against India. But what I've always wondered is that what is the exact consequence or the ramification of these kind of statements um, that... that um, uh, on on India's image in the world, does it really have? Do they really have um, 
any adverse consequences or are they really going to have any adverse consequences on India's image or do you believe that the the manner in which the resilience that's built into the international system where where domestic markets uh, where neoliberal agendas dominate over human rights principles of human rights justice or accountability uh, do you think those are going to compensate for the negative press or the bad press that india is getting from the international community so i've always wondered actually will it will it actually harm india all of these statements um, what do you what do you both think um, let's start with pranav so ankshuman i don't have a uh, definite response on this but i certainly think the way india was defined in a secular democratic order and the way india's pre 2014 or one would say 1950 self definition was it does harm india uh, in a very definitive way in the sense that india's bargaining power in the world does reduce when we look at the situation after india's union with the us Uh, uh, it was almost uh, forced to send it. Your your voice was interrupted. Just say that. Yeah, I'm just thinking when we look at the India's engagement uh, after the, during the COVID pandemic with the US, we do see a situation where India was almost forced to send the HCQ medicine uh, because Trump had asked. We also see a situation where at multiple levels, the European Union or other countries put human rights violations on the agenda when they meet uh, state leaders, and all of that. i think does in a way counteract india's bargaining power uh, when it's uh, maybe maybe talking about some trade deals or some concessions or other uh, other strategic interests and it does bring india's interest uh, it does make it a political issue in other domestic countries the best example is us where uh, the m- moment we have some in, uh, some indian state leader going there we have a lot of polarization in whether it should be engagement with them or not uh, who should engage and even the and even the indian state leaders and their policies also tend to fo- polarize them further we saw what happened in uh, the the trump rally that happened in both in us and in india so how will i think because of this definition of india in sectarian majoritarian authoritarian terms and the sort of monomy that the regime wants to establish with certain political readers in certain countries it does india a lot of disservice in material terms in not just in terms of uh, the bargaining power but also the sort of uh, buy in that a lot of other political groups and institutions have in india because if if india was really the best fr- uh, india's prime minister was really the best friend of trump we wouldn't be seeing a report like uscrf coming out from there so i do think it it does harm india in material terms if no. if we talk about in larger terms i think india is a large market so nobody is going to push the buttons in a very like nobody is going to uh, be very categorical in it but uh, at but at some st- level it does reduce a bargaining power right but uh, th- there is also there could also be a counter argument that um that let's let's for a moment distinguish between the united states and the eu agreed eu's human rights framework and and the way uh, eu privileges uh, human principles of human rights justice and accountability um, that remains right and eu has shook and shown that in various cases including in myanmar's case where it has applied some limited sanctions over the uh, over the rohingya crisis so the eu case is still there the eu liberal order case is still there but on the united states particularly uh, there is also a sense that if the us administration if the trump administration itself doesn't believe in the global human rights regime or itself is so dismissive of global human rights bodies then what real consequences would 
would a partner like india have um if it continues to um, sort of you know uh, stave off uh, human rights reports or critical statements on the human rights situation in india um i think that is also a sort of gray area that we need to look deeper into uh, but before you do that shubhangi uh, do you have any comments on this on 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 um particularly if uh the the criticism that india has been receiving from un bodies um or let's say the us uh, irf uh, does that have any real consequences on india's position within the global world order i agree with you i think that um, like the eu um is the only place where i see a significant uh, sort of a diplomatic push back because it has maintained a strong focus on human rights and human rights clauses also occupy a prominent place in eu bilateral negotiations right. but you know at the same time uh, like if i can pose a counter question mm-hmm. is that whether it um, like how much importance do we want to place upon human rights groups and their reports and i'll tell you why also because on one hand the criticism of human rights is not only coming from uh, authoritarian regimes um, but also coming from people who believe that human rights promotes a particular way a, and a particularly european way of the world and uh, has a particular notion of progress which states in the global south can never match up to and i think this is a this criticism has also been leveled at say amnesty international by countries such as nigeria or turkey so uh, i think the question then becomes that like how like how much reliance should we place upon human rights and knowing that human rights is a flawed system um what do we do about it but again like a counterfactual to that would be marginal marginalized communities in india have limited recourses to take and i'm not entirely sure which is why i would love to hear the both of your thoughts on this um when you like you be any marginalized community will fight with the tools they have available right and just because they're using a tool doesn't necessarily mean that they believe in it or that they legitimate it uh instead it might be a question of just finding power in the pockets where it exists so what do you guys think about human rights uh as a tool that's being used against uh right wing institutions how much reliance we should be placing upon it i i i think um, human rights defi- the concept of human rights in the post colonial sense i think it certainly carries some kind of a loaded subtext which is which may be seen almost like a new colonial uh, sort of imposition from the global north into the global south and i think we have seen a lot of countries in the global south make similar arguments um against um, against institutions like amnesty and hrw i particularly follow myanmar very closely and i have seen actually it's very um, the kind of arguments that myanmar has been making against international human rights regimes and the kind of uh, arguments that the modi government has been making they are uncannily similar to each other the way they dismiss uh, un reports or amnesty reports or human rights watch reports the language through which they do that it's very much similar um so i think there is certainly um a, a complexity built into the idea and the very idea of human rights and i actually found that you know the statement that um, the indian home minister amit shah made last year um where he talked about something called the indian human rights or you know uh, human rights in an indian context as if 
Indian human rights are different from universal human rights. As unsettling as that statement was, I found it very interesting in terms of how authoritarian or sectarian or nationalist regimes do not dismiss human rights, but they reframe human rights within their own understanding. Something within their own understanding or in a way that serves their own sectarian interests, so to say. Um, so I, I think it becomes very, then it becomes very easy um, for regimes uh, to dismiss human rights. But I constantly, again, think back to Myanmar as to where is this trajectory going? Right now, we are seeing human rights bodies like Amnesty or USCIRF, beyond the UN, UN bodies, of course, condemn India for sectarianism, uh, for anti-minority assaults and everything. But those are till those are limited to just statements there is there is no hardcore action or there is no uh, concrete tangible response that we are seeing from any quarter this was the case in myanmar for the longest time with the rohingya crisis uh, there was some intermittent noise made by the international community um, but nothing happened until the case was brought at the international court of justice by the gambia right and then we saw some tangible form uh, tangible uh, you know action being taken so I try to juxtapose that in the Indian situation and try to think whether whether this is what we are looking at, at if not the near but the distant future, uh, where statements ultimately transform into some concrete framework of legal accountability within the international legal system, right? So, uh, but um, Pranav, how do how do you look at this situation? So I have a common response to all of your concerns and questions in this case, and I think that is domestic politics. Uh, the domestic politics in the in Europe, in US, and in India will collectively determine the sort of institutional buying and importance of human rights as we as we understand them right now in terms of UDHR, ICCPR, and all, and also uh, the sort of pushback that we that they're going to face. I think if the critical mass of pushback from authoritarian regimes grows, and we have a Trump re-election in the US, and we have a lot of uh, these right-wing parties, uh, some of those which are invited to Kashmir to visit uh, Srinagar, if those, if that sort of assortment emerges and there is a new authoritarian legal order, uh, international order, then we can certainly see human rights as a concept uh, getting affected, and uh, and in that situation, India getting by very easily, and maybe in terms of being on the commanding heights of such a formulation. But I think that that is a very unlikely situation. I think currently, uh, as we look at a. Re, uh, a regime change in the US we, if, and uh, the sort of disquiet in the America, in the US Democratic Party about India is, uh, is, is a lot. And we also know that a lot of Islamic countries have been quite enraged uh, about uh, recent events, not the least about the Tablighi Jamaat uh, arrests that happened and the sort of de the long-term detention that followed. So I think that the situation will become slightly unsustainable for India, where this double speak will become difficult. Uh, the, and, I, and I think the ideological aversion to human rights um, cannot, cannot sustain India's na core national interest for too long. So at some time, uh, India will have to become more accountable to the various groups of power, of, 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 internet, of diplomatic powers that are trying to hold India accountable. But now that it becomes a question of where, which side the critical mass would be. But I see the critical mass going towards the side where more accountability is sought for. I think one more factor that we need to th think about is the state of South Asia or the sort of state of Kashmir Valley. So what will happen there? Because the moment something untoward happens, um, the sort of scrutiny of Indian policy would increase. 
and uh, I and I I I don't know how the situation there will pan out. I think it will also depend on how the situation in Pakistan domestically would pan out. So I think there's a lot of in, uh, related things and uh, will depend on uh, the sort of changes in domestic politics in my opinion. Right. I also again um, um, in in thinking about whether India uh, in the future if the trajectory continues in this manner that whether India will face any real action um, uh, at any international level or any international body. Um, again, I'm going back to the Myanmar example because it's a brilliant case study of what happens when a country keeps flouting international human rights val- uh, uh, norms and principles uh, and and doesn't face consequences. Right. Uh, for the longest time, China was one country which has come, which has defended Myanmar consistently at uh, United Nations Security Council. So whenever there has been a resolution against Myanmar, China has vetoed it down. But think about India. We do not have such a all-weather partner, especially within the P5, um, within the UN Security Council. Of course, um, uh, the Western Bloc is, uh, quote unquote, uh, a friendly partner to India. But as we have discussed, that link is also faltering, right? So we do not have an assurance. We do not have a uh, you know um, endearing or year-long assurance that uh, there is someone who is going to defend her at the UN Security Council if push comes to shove in the future, right? So that is also something that we've got to think about. Shubhangi, I want to put this question to you, particularly since you work on international law. So India, for instance, is a state party to a whole lot of uh, international treaties, and it's not a state party to a other whole lot of international state treaties, right? Um, for instance, in India is a state party to the ICCPR, right? But India is not a state party to the Refugee Convention, for instance. So those two things have been playing out dif- differently. Uh, there can be an argument that can be made based on the ICCPR that um, the arrests, the arbitrary arrests that have been made, um, that that are being made uh, against uh, political dissidents or uh, political activists, uh, and particularly from minority groups, uh, especially Muslims, that it somewhere violates the ICCPR. Uh, we could also argue at some level that the detention centers in existence in Assam, for instance, uh, violates principles of arbitrary detention, no prolonged arbitrary detention. Um, so those arguments can be made. At the same time, um, since India is not a state party to the Refugee Convention, um, um, there is an argument that is made that India can legitimately not take in refugees or send back refugees or refoul refugees. India has in fact refouled uh, at least seven Rohingya uh, refugees in the past two years, at least, um, from India back to Myanmar. Um, India, of course, calls it legitimate deportation. But then again, there is a question that um, non, the principle of non-reformer is a, is a part of in customary international law. That you do not need to sign the Genocide Convention uh, for, for, this, uh, for, uh, for, you to be, for you to not refoul uh, refugees, right? Uh, my question to you is that given the situation at home right now, how do you see um, international legal regimes interacting with India like, or, or affecting India? Or let's say um, India's actions falling within the ambit of uh, international legal laws, including those conventions that India has signed and not signed, um, and the third being customary international law. Okay, so with regard to the ICCPR first, I think it's crucial to remember that even if India is a signatory to the ICCPR, the municipal legal framework is still dualist in nature. What this means is that unlike some countries where international law uh, can be considered a part of the the law of the land, even without transformation to national law, the same does not happen in India. Under Article 253 of the Indian Constitution, the parliament has the power to enact a law to implement a treaty. And what this means is that international law does not become binding under the Indian Constitution 
until an appropriate domestic legislation is enacted to give effect to it so what this means is even now if there's a violation of rights under the iccpr it would be unactionable without a specific statute implementing those rights and india has also very conveniently made reservations to article uh, 13 of the iccpr which deals with the rights of aliens and uh, which would allow and which now allows it to apply its municipal law to foreigners without any interference then you like the other possible remedies um, that would have existed also seem doubtful because india has also refused to ratify the first optional protocol to the icpr which would have enabled an individual complaint mechanism um so this means that the icpr violations are non justiciable at the international level of course like you get the example of myanmar so the international court of justice can also address sort some violations um in particular icpr violations which it had done um, in one in a previous case which is the advisory opinion on the wall but it cannot investigate sovereign acts of states from its own accord without the same being disputed by one or more states so i think that's a very uh, that leaves us with in a way uh, dismal situation to say the least because like practically there even even if india just because india is a signatory to a treaty does not necessarily mean that there will be legal consequences if it violates the treaty right um with regard to like the un convention on refugees uh you're absolutely correct it hasn't signed it it hasn't signed the protocol i either and it doesn't even process it doesn't even have a domestic legal framework for refugees uh but what is interesting is that despite not having this india has traditionally adhered to the policy of non refoulement uh so the so the case of rohingyas actually marks a shift in india's stand on the principle of non refoulement uh which i would say like not only arises out of uh, rising hindu nationalism but also other competing interests that india has in the region for example uh, like the competition with china and india's economic interests and ambitions in myanmar and the fragile geopolitics of india's northeast where india constantly fears that there'll be an insurgency movement so i think all in all the ad hoc refugee policy and the very strategic legal ambiguity that exists uh allows india to differentiate between different groups in its treatment towards refugees and uh put other interests over humanitarian concerns so to speak right uh pranav i want to come to you with this um i think we quickly we briefly referred to this earlier that um we we somewhere understand the western bloc uh, criticizing india for human rights violations for pushbacks to its liberal democratic order but this time we saw something unique earlier this year we saw <clears throat> some criticism coming from a very unusual quarter which is the gulf um where where we saw some very strong statements made on social media um by influential users social media users from the gulf including kuwait um qatar if i'm not wrong um and bahrain um after a controversial and explicitly worded tweet by a bjp legislator tejashwi surya from bangalore emerged on social media and um we immediately saw this extreme reaction from the gulf about rising islamophobia in india 
although a lot of them sort of corrected their statements later and retracted their statements there was also a, there was also a letter which was written which was written to the kuwaiti parliament from one of the legislators which was leaked leaked later uh, which which is condemning india for rising islamophobia so um, but india traditionally has had a very healthy relationship uh, with with west asia with the gulf particularly um, and not just the gulf with north african countries like egypt uh, when nehru was and when nehru was highly admired by those countries in in the immediate post colonial sense right so but this time um, we saw uh, those countries speak up against india and i think it rattled the rattled the establishment in new delhi to a large extent we saw uh, jay shankar reaching out through back channels to them to to certain to those countries to assure them that you know uh, this won't this won't happen i think our ambassador in, in the united arab emirates also made a statement on twitter where it actually asked indian expats in the uae to adhere to quote unquote mutual principles of uh, you know uh, uh, tolerance inclusion democracy and all of that right so so what do you say can you can you give us a bit of a historical context if you want uh, as to how this sudden shift has emerged i think the problem is that when you start something and you lose control of it so if the prime minister starts a redefinition of the indian nationhood uh, and indian citizenship uh, wherein it is hindu majoritarian and which and that hindu majoritarian has the prejudice as well as aversion towards muslim and everything islamic as its central credo uh, then you don't know how where you can stop so i remember that uh, when the ambassador to uh, the I, i don't know the exact name i think maybe the saudi arabian uh, the ambassador to saudi arabia he mentioned secularism in his response to the indian uh, to the indian expats there saying that you are living in another country uh, you are uh, and that we come from a country which is secular yeah, we, i think that was the indian ambassador to the uae Yes, UAE. Yes, sorry. So he he did talk about non-discrimination. So I think that is the problem that we are had. So and that is what is uh, driving our confusion to a great extent, uh, because this redefinition project of Indian nationhood that is going on at one time uh, is it completely at odds with our traditionally espoused national interest, and in that the national interest was very smartly, deftly. made uh, during the neruvian era of foreign policy uh, senior journalist said nakvi in his book being the other has explained uh, in great detail how nehru ensured that very uh, some some uh, indian muslim intellectuals and uh, diplomats were stationed abroad in these gulf countries explicitly uh, like there was a there was an explicit outreach to islam and india did not shy away from its islamic heritage culture and um, we did see even modi government participate try to see uh, to participate in the oic meetings but even the relationship with the organization of islamic countries has gone sour after the situation in kashmir so i do see that the current government acknowledges that the policies of the uh, of the of the neruvian foreign uh, policy establishment were did make strategic sense for india which is why they course correct whenever something like this happens but that does not mean that they actually change or stop their uh, strident project for redefinition of the indian nation so they have, so this decoupling is unsustainable and there will have to come a time where non discrimination as an idea has to be practiced that practiced both at home and abroad so the dog whistling of muslims etc done by top leaders will have to stop in india as well otherwise you cannot expect your experts abroad to um, to not follow your example so right. i think that's the sort of situation we are in and it's a very 
confusing situation. Uh, this again, I think this comes back to what we were discussing earlier that there is a there's a sort of double speak in India's attitude, right? Where at home it's where the government is targeting Muslims, but it has very good relations and very good sort of uh, geo strategic understandings and agreements with Muslim majority countries in the Gulf, like Saudi Arabia, UAE, Kuwait, uh, Bahrain, etc. Uh, but again, uh, it's true what you said that even if there are relationships, good relationships between New Delhi and let's say Riyadh. Or New Delhi and, and and Abu Dhabi. The point is that if there is an escalating rhetoric against Indian Muslims, then it'll di- become difficult for governments in Muslim majority countries like those to continue good relations with India, even if they want to, in a very real politic sense. Even if they want to, there will be pressure at home in their own countries from their own constituencies to review the relationship with India. I think we are seeing a lot of this in in the India Bangladesh bilateral also where. Dhaka for the longest time had has tried to stay stay neutral, and in fact, in fact, to the to the line that Delhi was towing on NRC that this is an internal issue, right? So and Dhaka had agreed that this is an internal issue, but we see you know uh, complaints and we see certain pushbacks or headwinds rather coming in from Dhaka um, because of the very fact that more and more people in Bangladesh, a Muslim majority country, has started speaking out against legislations like the CAA, the NRC. Uh, and the Modi government's ostensible anti-Muslim assaults, right? Um, so, so I think this will come to head at some point. Okay, this is my last question, and I have to ask this. You know, um, <clears throat> now that we have a Joe Biden administration, an incoming Biden administration in the White House, uh, which supposedly is going to be very different from a Trump presidency, um, right? How do you think India's image uh, will come about to be? Uh, in the eyes of uh, the United States, will there be a shift at all, um, or will the Modi government, you know, um, suffer in any way because um, of an of the exit of an administration which was more or less expressly sympathetic towards um, the kind of governance that Narendra Modi was um, practicing at home? So I think I mean, at this stage, it's hard to say how a potential. Biden presidency will pursue foreign policy. I mean, obviously, Biden was the vice president, and he has taken certain vocal positions on foreign policy over the years. So we do have some things to draw upon. And uh, in my opinion, like I think that he'd take a very mainstream view in the sense that he would be an advocate for strong American leadership and exceptionalism on the world stage, but frequently like less hawkish than others, including the present um, incumbent government of the United States. So just to give an example, uh, I think Biden had voted for the Iraq war, but then he's also voted against bombing in Syria and against intervention in Libya thereafter. Um, But at the same time, Biden doesn't come across someone who'd be interested in defense cuts and what I thought was particularly alarming for from the positionality of the global south, uh, when you're looking at Biden's foreign policy, is that when he during Obama's presidency, he had what we call uh, international relations parlance, a light footprint approach to terrorism. So he advocated for drones and rapid deployment to conduct borderless strike strategies against terrorist groups all over the world. And I think that presents some problems um, to most countries of the global south, including India. So I think the Democrats have always claimed that they adhere to a value-based foreign policy, 
but the facts on ground have often been very different however with regard to india in particular i think there has been like there's something going on in the democratic party which we also saw in the primaries where there was an effort by at least the younger members of the democratic party um to make foreign policy an issue to really reevaluate the way america conducts itself in the world and make it a salient political move so i think the question then becomes will biden be pressurized by um, the younger members of the democratic party to move in that direction that being said i'm not really sure whether um, india will be a priority in the near future because the united states much like the rest of the world is in a massive political crisis that i don't see ending anytime soon um, i think like very recently biden had put up his transition plans on his website and he lists four clear plans including the covid crisis racial inequality economic security and climate change so and these are all like very domestic issues and i think it will definitely be a while before something like kashmir is even on the us radar right right uh, th- there is definitely some sense in the fact that uh while the democratic party has always postured liberally when it comes to doing foreign policy or diplomacy in the real world it has taken a very realist approach uh, a very real politic approach uh, but th- there is also uh, the fact that the democratic party has this progressive left wing uh, made up of people like uh, alexandria ocasio cortez ilhan omar rashida tlaib uh, and even pramila jaipal Uh, who tried to meet our foreign minister S Jayashankar when he visited uh, the United States some time back but was refused audience which actually attracted some bad press and negative attention from people like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez right who stood behind Pramila Jaipal so there is this progressive left wing within the Democratic Party which uh, would have more human rights or accountability oriented approaches in its foreign policy and to a, and to a certain degree uh, Bernie Sanders is the pack leader of this pack right the, i i know there are some gray friction between this particular left wing within the democrats and the more centrist moderate left wing uh, centrist moderate democrats like uh, joe biden and hillary clinton but still um, the existence of this particular wing and uh, the future of this wing in american politics cannot be discounted on top of that what the modi government did uh, vis-a-vis the trump administration was behave in a particularly partisan manner right by doing events such as howdy modi and you know going on stage in the united states and saying ab ki baar trump sarkar or this time trump sarkar again um i think modi created this kind a kind of friction between uh, himself and the political opposition to trump which uh, most prominently the democratic party and now that we have a democrat president uh, do you think that's going to matter do you think all of this is going to matter now pranav so i think anshu man as has been discussed in the past in the commentary that has been around this issue uh, the india's issues will certainly be addressed uh, more patiently in terms of trade and uh, even military support and the sort of international alliance building that uh, that that biden looks to make and uh, in especially in dealing with china we will, we will have the aid of more level headed thinking but i think your question is more related to the sort of relationship of the uh, strong man the national leader uh, modi uh, narendra modi and uh, his his regime with the regime in us and i think with regards to that uh, it's important 
um, it will really depend upon the sort of influence that the progressive caucus in the in the democratic party will have and it as it appears uh, they are not going to get any positions in the biden administration and they will all they will continue to remain uh, like a fringe group and if not a fringe group then having very subs like non substantial say in the sort of pop power politics i i i agree that the sort of partisanship that modi had uh, displayed uh, and a lot of bjp supporters in india had displayed towards trump's party will make a make, make things slightly awkward but they but i think because these are matter of state and both are diplomats they will uh, this this awkwardness won't be a big issue the biggest issue will be uh, on the breaches of minority rights because those will be highlighted by global media they will become matters that institutionally the uh, the us institutions etc will take up and uh, how does the us president deal with them i think the us president will not shut them out or not listen to them we we will have more opportunities for the government to come tra become transparent or ha have a conversation so sort of shutting off of uh, dissenting voices uh, the foreign dissenting voices uh, is less likely to happen i guess but i think overall um, biden's uh, overall record doesn't seem to be a very human rights uh, defending the uh, record and he seems to be like a run of the mill white democratic leader uh who who has done a lot of things and so so we don't we don't i don't think there will be a very principled stand that he will take against uh, breaches of minority rights and etc but some but certain factors like the prominence of the progressive caucus and all will uh, really play a role and i think that there will be a change but it will not be substantial as has been argued all right thanks both of you uh for sparing i would say more than an hour now um for this for this particular episode we have covered a lot of ground and there's there's a lot of things happening and this is a vast topic so i'm glad we spoke so much i think this was this is the longest episode i've recorded so far and i think it's going to be worth it once again thank you both for taking out time and joining me on this show thank you anshuman it was a real pleasure thank to speak to you anshuman <laughs> thank you for having us <laughs>